Welcome to the WatermarkOC.Church podcast. Thank you for listening. Amen. Thanks, Bucky, and thanks, you guys, for being here. Uh, like Bucky said, we're rounding out this book study in uh, the book of Hebrews. We're going to be in chapter 13, so get your phone out if that's what you use for your Bible. Uh, get your print Bible out if that's what you use as your Bible, because uh, you want to finish with us. I'm going to be in two verses uh, that I feel like everything is there. The whole meat of, of finishing out this message is right there in two key verses in, the, in chapter 13. But before we get there, I want to tell you about the big idea I have for us this morning. Uh, because I think today, the big idea from chapter 13 in the book of Hebrews is really about Christian leadership. It's, it's, it's how can we, whether we're new in our faith or whether we've been a believer for years, how do we become leaders of the faith? And as I was prepping for our time this morning, I, I thought about a, a management tool. Anyone here in management? Just raise that little sneaky, silent hand there. Okay, cool. There's two or three of us. Sweet. It's going to be a really relevant illustration. No, no, no. But, but everyone, whether you're in management or not, you'll understand the illustration. And it's called, it's, a, it's like a matrix. It's a graph. It's really a picture. And it's called the skill versus will matrix. And this is what it looks like. Hopefully it comes up in a second here. Oh, it's red. So I don't know if you can see it uh, as, as well at all. That's horrible. Uh, it's a diagnostic tool, okay? It's an assessment tool. You have on one uh, arm, skill, and the other one, will. And what it's meant to do is help you in managing, managing teams, people, individuals. What, it, what it's meant to help you do is find out, hey, everyone is, is lacking. Everyone has a, a weakness or a blind spot in one of those two areas, either skill or will. And the center part of the box, which is blindingly red right now, uh, will tell you how to then respond in your management, in your coaching style, in your training of those, of those people, of those teams. And so I think that every single one of us in this room, there's a spiritual implication here. There is. I think there's a great spiritual implication because, first of all, you should have the definition. And, and again, half of it will be legible because it's in red and the other half is in black. So uh, as, it, as it loads up, there we go. Great. So skill. I'll, just, I'll, I'll read it to you. Skill is the, oh, there it is, the knowledge, experience, gifting, the tools of doing the work of the ministry. That's the skill side. Every single one of you in this room, I don't care if you're day one believer or you've been a believer for your whole life, you've been equipped with some natural abilities, some God-given gifts. And then you've had some experience, especially those in the room. Maybe you've seen some things over the years, and that would add to your skills column. The second thing, the second part of the chart is will. The passion, motivation, energy, desire for doing the work of the ministry. So you can see that in the bottom left corner of the graph, from your view, bottom left, someone might be lacking in skill, Maybe they're, maybe they're a, a brand new believer or a brand new worker, but they just got a job or they just said yes to Jesus. So they have high levels of passion. They have some crazy motivation because they're like, this thing is cool. What? Jesus saves? Awesome. And so they got high levels of maybe will. And, but on the skill side, they don't maybe know how to read their Bible or what that even means. Or, or, or maybe they don't, they don't really know how to get in a group and, and why that would grow their faith. Or, or, or they don't know what it means to trust God with their finances because... We want to hold on to those things. Just That's also part of our nature. Every single one of us in the room could slot ourselves somewhere in this spectrum. And I think it's, it's probably really true, guys, that, that there's some of us this morning who um, we need some growth in the skill side of things. We, we always could use more equipping, better training. Maybe we need a spiritual mentor in our lives. That, that could be a great chunk of people in this room. Um, having some experience with our community, I think there's a challenge, though, for, for a great many of us in this room, in the second part, the will, the side of the will. Because I was, you know, I'll just use my story. I was born and raised a believer. 
And uh, that's a blessing and a curse. I have this great inheritance of faith, but at the same time, I've had amazing seasons where I was just so lackadaisical. And uh, I, I found myself maybe being a little bit like this guy right here. Go ahead, show him, show him what we have next, Mel. This is a guy at Disneyland, okay? And you're just going to check him out. He seems like he's enjoying his experience, but then it takes a churn for the worst. This video is called the Disneyland Death Stare. The Death Stare. Because look at him. That you've gone to Disneyland a hundred times, you've ridden all the same rides, it's no longer amusing. Look at his face! He just doesn't even care. It's like this place has lost its luster. This is it's lost its ex experience that's motivating me or making me care about anything at all. Look at him. He just hates his life. How can you hate your life? You're at Disneyland, kid. Another title for Disneyland is the happiest place on earth. And you just look at his face and you're like, man, something's gone wrong with this guy. And I, I just worry, guys, sometimes that in our faith and the drudgery that can be our faith, that we, we look like the Disneyland death stare, you know? And I, and I want to I encourage us. I want to both equal parts caution us and encourage us that maybe we need a little diagnosis. Maybe we could use an assessment of where our faith is at this morning. And I think you'll find that the corresponding text from, from Hebrews chapter 13 uh, has a great way of doing that. So if you look to your screen, look to your phones, look to your books, this is what it says. I'm going to read the whole thing, and then we're just going to go almost line by line because there's just so much here, and I want to highlight a couple key words. All right, so this is the whole text, though, for this morning. Obey your spiritual leaders and do what they say. Their work is to watch over your souls, and they're accountable to God. Give them reason to do this with joy and not with sorrow. May he equip you with all you need for doing his will. May he produce in you, through the power of Jesus Christ, every good thing that is pleasing to him. All glory to him forever and ever. Amen. So this author of Hebrews, they're not 100% sure who it is. Some people say Paul. Okay, we'll, we'll call it Paul. So, so he's giving these parting words to a class. Maybe they're Christian leaders. Maybe they're new believers. They're trying to figure out, can we fully commit to this new way? It's the first or second century. It's a pretty new idea. And Paul, he may never see them again. So what are his parting words? But right here, in this last chapter, these are his parting words. I mean, like picture like a dying man's last words. This is what he wants to impart to these believers, these new believers. And really, it's a message of persevere. Persevere in this good news that I've given you. So we're going to deep dive. We're going to go one verse after the next, starting in verse 17. In verse 17, it says, and I can't see it, but I think you guys can. Awesome. Great. Obey your spiritual leaders and do what they say. Mic drop. Everyone can go home. Thanks for coming out. Appreciate your time. Just follow that verse and you're going to be okay. All right? I'm kidding. But the principle is obedience. Obedience. The operative word in that first half of verse 17 is to obey. But where should we go next? You could go anywhere with that. Millions of options to talk about Christian obedience. I could say, you know, just, just obey the word. There's some students in the room tonight. Where's the teenagers at? You're a teenager. Let me hear something. All right. Vague giggles from the person who leads the teenagers. Awesome. Cool. I could say obey your parents. Well, you don't have to be a teenager. We still have parents, and we can still honor them, right? Uh, obedience is an outgrowth of grace and love. That's where it comes, by the way. We should be motivated to obey, not from guilt or shame or condemnation, but from, from the love of, of, a, of, a, of a gospel, right? The grace of the gospel should lead us to want to obey. But how about simply this? There's a verse that's from the same chapter, but it's not on the screen. This comes from verse 20. It says in Hebrews 13, 
Now may the God of peace who brought up from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, and ratified an eternal covenant with his blood. So what is that verse, what is he pointing to? He's pointing to Jesus on the cross. It's put even in a more clear way in Philippians 2.8. It says, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death. What to death? Go ahead, say it with me. He became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Wow! What a startling definition of obedience. LOL, guys. I'm sorry to just pick it up there. I know that's blunt. But you can see what is inherent there to Philippians 2. And in Hebrews chapter 20, he's defining obedience as dying. So Christians in the room, can we just die already? I know that's pretty hardcore. That's pretty startling. But while there's all sorts of things, and there's all sorts of things I could call you to and challenge you to die. There's a, a gentleman who's coming into service. His wife just had service, uh, surgery, excuse me, had surgery, a major knee replacement surgery. And he has had to take care of her in the middle of the night, all through the night, bringing, you know, ice water and massaging the area of the surgery. He is totally forsaking himself to lay down his life for his wife. That's the definition of a marriage agreement, by the way especially for the man. That's what Paul says. You're called to give up your life and serve your bride the way Christ served the church. That means to die. I could use that example. It's a wonderful example and a true example. But how about another one? How about church preferences? Church preferences is an awesome area where we could all die. So for example, this morning we're trying a new service order. We kind of changed some things up. We did did like three songs and then we did announcements and a message and then we'll have more music at the end. There's a couple tweaks. And if you're new, that means nothing to you. And maybe you've been here two years and you're still like, man, I'm just stoked to, you know, hear hear the message and and sing a little bit. Great. And this would never happen here. Would never happen to Watermark. But it's some other example of a church. You know, you make one little change like that, you might get 15 emails about how, you know what, Paul never would have done the song right there, and he never would have allowed you to use that passage in that way, right? Those are the types of emails that some, not us, some pastors out there might have to tolerate. And the point is, if we're dying, if we're dying to our preferences, wherever, our personal preferences in the house, our personal preferences at work, our preferences on Sunday morning, if we're dying, if we're called to die to those things daily, then there's an implication for our skill or our will. So I put the question to you. you, can, you can, you're sitting there. I want you to answer for yourself in your own heart. If obedience is this willingness to die, then for you, how are you called to that? Is that a skill issue for you or is that a, is that a will issue for you? Is that an issue of motivation and desire or is it, is it an issue of I just don't even know how, I don't have the tools, I don't know how to obey in that way? What is it for you this morning? Next one. It says that their work is to watch over your souls. Wow, okay, so we started out with die and now we're going straight to souls. Like at first glance, it looks like someone's in charge or responsible for your souls. And as, as Christian leaders, we do, we have a responsibility, even those who are, you know, been the whole life Christian or, or, or day one, you have some kind of leadership responsibility to at least even one person in your life, whether you have kids, whether you have a significant other, uh, if you're a teenager and you have a younger sibling in your house, everyone has at least one person that they could be responsible for in that way. And what I think we need to know about soul work, guys, is that soul work is ultimately a type of salvation work even. Look at, look at what one author says. It's on the screen, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read it here. Uh, I, I guess I went one f- too far, um, and now I don't know where I am. <laughs> uh, let's see here. 
It's the quote, it's the Piper quote, Mel. Maybe you can go to it. And I'm just going to stand here and do nothing because I'm, I'm useless with my clicker over here. It's uh, just one paragraph and it, and it says Piper at the end. Oh, there, that's it. That's it. Okay, great. Great. I'm the idiot. Here we go. Biggest idiot in the room. Let's go. Okay. It says, the one who endures to the end will be saved. That's Mark 13, 13. Remember, endurance, perseverance, that's what Hebrews is about. That's his parting words, is to endure. And this author, he goes on to say, this is the message of Hebrews. It means that all messages and all meetings are salvation meetings. What? Huh? Well, well, not because they only aim at the first decision for Christ, but because our final salvation comes to us through persevering faith. Not just a one-time decision. Salvation of the soul is the ongoing work of God month after month to preserve us safe in Jesus by preserving our faith. Do you know that there's uh, statistics out there? Um, there's a study called Reveal. You can look it up. You can Google it called Reveal. They, they, they uh, interviewed over 250,000 churchgoers. There's 1,000 different diverse uh, church congregations. And one of, the, one of their findings was that you could attend church for years and years and years and never make a commitment to Christ. They said you could go to church for five years without ever significantly making a decision, a commitment for Christ. And not only that, they said as the years go on after that, it only becomes harder and harder. Crazy, right? That just blew out the water when they, they wrote a book called Move. You can look it up. And, and, I, and I happened to check it out. And, and, and that's the chapter one revelation is that, guys, it doesn't help to just get your butts in seats at church. That may not equate, that might not equal growth or significant commitment decision in your faith, in your faith leadership. Crazy. Why is that? Well, you look at the lives of these Hebrews, and the Hebrews, you know, they weren't just in danger of plateauing, you know, having just a plateau of their will, of their desire, of their motivation. They were in danger of going backwards. Total, just forsaking this thing, forget this Jesus way. I'm going back to the the, the cocoon that is the, the Jewish system I came from, at least the law I can count on. But for us, you guys, really, what's the difference? What's the difference between plateauing, growing no more, developing no more, trusting God no more, and and going backwards? What's the difference? So soul work is the aim of the believer. But how? A really good question would be awesome, Ben. Soul, salvation, every meeting, every small group is going to be about salvation. Okay, cool. But how? We need to apply this. We should get it somewhat applicational here. But how? It's a great question. Do you think, for example, do you think it was just random that Bucky, who, who was up here earlier, and, and twice in the last month, gave a message on community, on getting involved in a community? Do you think that was random? Of course not. You look at this community of believers, you look at this community of faith, and what they realized was, we're on the streets getting hammered every single week. Every day our lives are in danger. Every day we're in danger of making our colleagues forget the fact that we're even Christian when we check into the office. And, and so when we get together as a house church, this is the first century, this is Paul talking to these believers and, and Bucky and these messages about community, that's why we want to do the same thing they did thousands of years ago and move from rows into circles because when you get in a group, things happen. You get to work out your, your salvation, so to speak, through rubbing up against some other people who are going to help you see those blind spots. They're going to see, dude, you got all the skill in the world. You've been a believer 20 years. I just don't think you care anymore. And those types of awesome conversations can happen in a small group. And that's the beauty of a small group. Why would he be talking about those? Because we know that's where people grow. It's imperative. 
So if you want to find out, if you want to find out whether you're stalled or you've plateaued or not, there's a simple question to ask. It's a pretty effective question. You can just ask yourself, have I, have I been, have I changed in the last five years, the last three years, the last one year, or am I basically the same person spiritually that I was at the beginning of that time? And then how are some of the ways that we might even be able to look at some of that growth? There's some, there's some more application here. They can help push you into further trust, can help push you into further obedience, can help push you into, into this doing the soul work that God wants. Do you know that that's what giving is? That's all giving is. Generosity. That's all it is. It's giving greater and greater percentages of your heart, of your heart, to trust over to God, which is a spiritual discipline. So before you go running to the doors, by the way, I'm not just talking about to your local church. What about to the homeless? If you went and you looked at over 2,000 references in the Bible, over 2,000 references, cover to cover of the Bible that talk about money or generosity, the vast majority of them are for the homeless. Give to those who are poor. I mean, that's incredible. Something will happen in your heart, in your soul, when you trust God. How about reading daily, reading the Bible daily? I don't care how long you do it. I'm not saying memorize everything, but you've got even one verse, but daily repetition. They say that's one of the ways people experience explosive growth in their faith. And doing this work of the soul is daily. They get a daily touch point with God's word. Attending. Attending. Yeah, I, I said it. Coming to church on Sundays. But wouldn't you expect a pastor to say that, by the way? Otherwise, why, why am I in this business? Like, why am I here? I think something does still happen when we're in community and we get to worship together and we hear a message. And okay, finally, for those who are just rolling their eyes like, Ben, this is so basic. Great. Way to go. You just hit every pastoral cliche there is. Okay. And you've been a believer for 20 years, been going to church all those years, and you got a great attendance sheet. It's not about the head count. It's about your heart. Hear me, okay? How about this? Mature Christian leader out there. Are you talking to others about God? Are you, are you inviting others to experience life change that, that you have? Are, are you radically generous outside the four walls of the church? Are, are you mentoring someone else? Are you paying it forward? You've got 20 years of equipping 10, 15, 20 years of equipping in your soul. That is a highly mature believer. Unleash that stuff on someone else. That's the mission and vision of Watermark. We think it's worth it to build a generational community. That means those who have gone before can grab someone else. I don't care if you're 40 and you're a new believer. That's generational. Start building into that person. Or the teenagers who are in the room. Start Grab a teenager and start building into their lives. That's a big deal, and that's a mark of your skill and your will going towards a certain trajectory. Where are you at on that pendulum today? It says that they were accountable to God. They were accountable to God. Now, I have an awesome reference for this when you talk about accountability as believers who are maturing in our faith and, and maturing in our leadership. There's a great reference in Luke 12. You can skip over to it if you want. But Jesus is using this parable there's this awesome conversation about, about uh, household managers and how they're going to be held accountable. Jesus has just finished the illustration, and the disciples turn to him, and they say, oh, Jesus, was that for us or for, for everyone, that, that note, that parable, that story? And I, I just love the disciples. Quick aside, um, there, there's some great literature that suggests that some of the disciples were teenagers. They were actually teenagers or young adults. And if you really look, you look at when they finished their, their, their Jewish studies and then they went into their vocational career and the fact that they weren't married, you can size up seven or eight key details that suggest this. And so teenagers in the room, heads up, you can be disciples, okay? Jesus could have tapped you on the shoulder and you could have been following him in the way. But I love their innocence of their question. Was that me, him, him, me? Are we, are we, are we implicated here in the story? And of course we are, because here he goes on. He goes on to spell out four different types of house managers. We're talking about accountability. 
and managing a house with some serious accountability and responsibility. Jesus calls them servants. And he says the owner, the owner's out of town, and there's four different types of people that took care of the house. He says there's the one that's done good and gets a reward. It's not on the screen, but he, he lists one. They did good, and they get a reward. He puts it really plainly. There's another who threw a rager, who just threw an absolute rager, and got busted, to put it mildly. You can look what it says in the passage yourself. And then he finishes with two more, and these are the ones that will be on the screen. Okay, these are his last two examples. And a servant who knows what the master wants, but isn't prepared, and doesn't carry out those instructions, will be severely punished. But someone who does not know, and then does something wrong, will be punished only lightly. Here's the principle at the end of the verse. When someone has been given much, much will be required in return. And when someone has been entrusted with much, even more will be required. Does that sound like accountability? Does that sound like Jesus cares about how we took care of his household affairs? All uh, of the stuff we've been given. Our, our stuff, yeah, I've already talked about money. Our personal belongings. Do we, is it all God's stuff? Our, our home, the place where we live, is it all God's stuff? Our relationships in the workplace, are we managing those like it's God's stuff, like it belongs to him? Our, our house and the people that are in our house, are we managing them like it's God's stuff? Are we acting like these managers, and which one do we fall into? God, God could have, Jesus, he could have just stopped right there and said, there was the party boy, and there was the good boy. But he went on to give further nuance. He says there was the one that, was, that knew, but was unprepared. And he says there's the one that was outright ignorant. So which one are we? Which one are we this morning? The one who did a good job? The one who knew, but didn't carry it out? He didn't do anything about it? Accountability. It's an area of skill, and or will decide for your own heart. Where are you at this morning? Where is God pushing you to either be, to have more passion for that accountability, more understanding of that accountability? Maybe you're newer in your faith walk and you literally don't even know what accountability means at all. You don't even have a working definition. Great. Let's grow you in that. I invite you to take a next step so you can find out more about what accountability means as someone who's leading in their faith. It goes on. Give them reason to do this with joy and not with sorrow. Hmm, why is joy so important? Why is joy such a big deal? Because it seems like when I read this, it seems like he, he's not saying it's optional. He's suggesting it's essential. And, and before we get to the answer, I think we have to address some of the elephant in the room, some of the problem. Because churches of the past and church leadership of the past have led and produced to an amazing amount of fatigue an amazing amount of burnout. People who've just left the church just jaded and angry. The shame and the burdens and the fatigue that come with that. You know, you gotta, and it goes both ways. The pastors, you know, there's, they say, there's some statistics, again, you can find this through Lifeway Research. Go to Lifeway Research. Some of these statistics suggest there's 250 pastors a month who leave their work nationwide. 250 pastors a month who leave their work. Not necessarily the lead person, but some staff person out there, this pastor, per month says, I don't even want to be about this life anymore. Forget it. It's just not worth it. That's one side. The other side is our people that I mentioned. They get burnt out. Why? There's one guy doing five jobs in the whole church. Yeah, that, he's going to get burnt out. And he was doing it all the while because he thought someone from the stage or wherever was giving them shame and guilt and pressure that they could never live out. We've got to get over that hurdle. We've got to allow ourselves rest. We've got to allow ourselves that radical, powerful grace as a community. And that's what we're hoping to be at Watermark. But that's the obstacle. So why then is joy so essential? 
And I'm sorry to be really basic here, guys, but it's essential because that's our example. That's our example. The fact that we show joy is a, is a way of reflecting a beautiful bride. That's the language that the Bible uses, right? Is that, is that the church, is Jesus is married to the church and it should be a beautiful bride. When we come up here as believers in seats or as the people on the stage and we're leading in our faith and we just look lame and we just look apathetic like Disneyland death stare guy, what does that say? What kind of example is that about the bride? And yet on the other hand, we've all seen a bride standing at the altar and your attention is looking at, at, at her as she's walking and making her way and then she gets to the front. What is her look on her face except for sheer joy? And I get that that's day one of the marriage agreement, right? We understand, we get that the challenge becomes how do we retain a deep, abiding sense of joy even after day one in marriage? That's the challenge of a believer, that, believer, that, that you and I, as we're growing and learning to be Christian leaders, need to think about. How do we show the world that we're joy-filled through thick and thin? For you this morning, is that, is that a will issue? Man, that, it sure feels like it. Because we're here we are in the first world and we got a lot to be thankful for. We got a lot to be joy-filled for. And we could show that to the world. Great challenge to be put before us. Verse 21. This is the next one here. May he equip you with all you need for doing his will. And you get this is kind of my bias this morning, guys. This is my encouragement for us. But I think that a lot of us are plenty equipped. We're very well equipped. You know, it was uh, uh, maybe a month ago now that I got the opportunity to play in my high school alumni match. My alum- I played volleyball, and um, I went to Corona Omar High School just down the street here. I never used to get to go. The game's always on Saturday, and I worked at a church before Watermark where we always had ser- Saturday service, so it was always a no for me, and I love it. I love going back to play. Why? Because I'm a total glory days guy, okay? That's why I love to play. I just want to, you know, whoop on some teenagers and show them that I still got it, make sure my body's not totally broken down and injure myself in the process, uh, but I was so pumped to go, and uh, it was a lot of fun, and I did hold my own, by the way. I totally, I passed. I was a back row passer, and uh, every serve that came to me, I passed flawlessly. So I'll just tell you that right now. I'll just get that out of the way. No big deal. Um, but before the game began, uh, I was so gassed. I was like out of air. I was, I was a sweaty mess. It was uh, embarrassing. Um, and, and before the game began, I was sitting down with one of the assistant coaches, because we played together, actually, back in the day. And he was telling me about the, the different kids, the different students around the team, and he was telling me about two all-stars, two standout athletes. Guys, div- Division I ticket, they could play wherever they want to play. That's them. And guess what? Neither of those two are playing for the whole season. They may have a chance to come back and play for the playoffs. And I said, why? What the he- what, what's going on? What happened? And the, the coach told me that they, they were suffering from something called citizenship. Is there a high schooler in the room that knows what that term is, citizenship? Raise your hand. What does it mean? Holler it out. Come on. Any student? Awesome! We're going to talk afterwards, guys. Um, citizenship is another way, word for talking about behavioral or attitudinal problems. It means they got busted. It's not just grades. It means that they were popping off in class or they were messing around. And so they're on probation. They're on probation. Two kids, two kids who have more talent in their one finger than I do in my whole body now or then, and they don't even get to play for the whole season. Maybe for playoffs they'll come back. And now I actually want to hear from you out loud when I ask the question, is that a problem of skill or will? Go ahead, one more time. Is that a skill or a will problem? Will. Will. So grieved. You can see now I'm talking about it. It's stuck with me ever since I left the school. But 
grieved to hear about these young people who are missing out on their opportunity. And I wonder how could it look differently if they had someone in their lives, a mentor, someone from their community, their neighborhood. Maybe they don't go to a church. Maybe from their neighbor, there's a Christian. I bet you there's a Christian who lives across the street from those kids. And how could it look differently if they had someone equipping them and raising the bar on the will so they can be a successful individual? Forget the the sport. The skills of understanding motivation and focus and determination alongside uh, kind of stewarding or managing your God-given gift will serve them all the days of their life. You could do that. We could do that in the lives of the next generation, for sure. And so as you reflect on this question, you guys, this particular one, are we equipped or not? Which is a will type of will, or it's a skill, excuse me, it's a skill type thing. Do we really need another conference? Do we need another study, another seminar, another webinar? I think we are full of great teaching and equipping. Give you one more illustration on this. Just consider the third world. Consider the church that's in the developing world. A church that's, you know, in the Middle East, North Egypt, where where Christians are torched. Or or maybe China, where you go to prison if they find out about your, your faith in Jesus. If there's an underground church like the one I've painted here, who would be nominated for leadership? The person who's read no books of the Bible or the person who's read one book of the Bible? Who's equipped, ready to serve? Yeah the one that's read even one gospel book and can say, this is what happened with Jesus. This is the good news of the cross. And it's affected me personally. Every single one of us in the room, I don't care if you're day one or you're a 20-year believer, every one of us in the room has that same message. I know this Jesus, and this Jesus affected me personally. So there's a great challenge of will there. And teenagers who are in the room, there's no difference for you. You know, someone once said that there's no such thing as a junior Holy Spirit. That's a fact, isn't it? That's a fact. For those of us in the room who have said yes to Jesus, there is the gift of the Holy Spirit given to you. That means you have the power of God inside you. There's no proportion. There's no size. That's the power of God, His Spirit inside you. So consider that, that there's no such thing as a junior Holy Spirit. So I've talked about skill, being the natural talents, the training, the equipping, the excellent teaching, or even the mentoring that you've had. And we talked about will being the passion, the desire, the motivation, even the energies around it. But there's a a word I've left off. Okay, intentionally, yes. Okay, but the other part of will is confidence. It's the confidence of the fact that you have that personal relationship with Jesus and you can talk about him. And you have the Holy Spirit. What does the verse say? It says that by the power, if you go one below, may he produce in you through the power of Jesus Christ. So therefore, you have all the confidence in the world. It's not just that you have great gifting. It's not just that you've had all the great equipping and training in the world. You have every reason to take full confidence in the fact that it's Christ alive in you. Okay, so finally, in the the end of, uh, of verse 20, what's the result? What is the result of all the skill and all the will in the world as we walk this earth on this side of heaven? What's the result? What's the outcome? You see, a lot of us as believers... We get a little bit jaded anytime we talk about producing fruit. Well, what does it actually produce? And we think, oh, man, just stop. You don't worry about measuring it. And if that's too results-oriented. And, and I get that because a lot of us, we do that on our own. We over-focus on results and performance. That is not our God. That is not our Jesus. But what happens is that if you follow some of these things, if you look at what Hebrews 13 is speaking to you in terms of skill and will and where you can grow, something's going to be produced. And cover to cover in the Bible, it speaks to that right? And the most common illustration of fruit. 
a healthy plant will produce fruit. There's something that's going to be produced. And as I, as I wind down our time and the band comes up, what I want you to hear is that what will he produce? He'll produce through the power of Jesus Christ every good thing that is pleasing to him, all glory to him forever and ever. Amen. That our God is a God who produces fruit. Our God is a God of transformation. So here's some of the questions that I want you to think about as a developing Christian leader. These are some of the questions that we live in as a staff. This will give you insight. I could have taught this whole thing on, hey, guess what? This is what pastors do at Watermark. And here's what your elders, your volunteer elders are all about. Here's the structure of the church. No, I think we're all on this trajectory of becoming Christian leaders. But here's some questions that we ask. Here's some questions that we think about in our week-to-week as the leaders of the church. What impact is the church having on people's lives? Is it making a tangible difference? Are families, communities, and whole cities being transformed? Is the city being transformed? City of Costa Mesa? Would would the city of Costa Mesa know if Watermark was gone tomorrow or not? That's a viable question to ask. We want to make sure that this community called Watermark makes a tangible mark and is present in the community of Costa Mesa and beyond, where you live as emissaries, as ambassadors sent into your neighborhoods of Tustin, Irvine, Newport, Huntington. Are you leaving a mark on those neighborhoods and those communities? Are our people closer to Christ? Are our people closer to Christ, or do they exhibit more authentic love and passion? There's a way you can tangibly feel that. I sit with newcomers to Watermark all the time. I get to have coffee and lunch with them as they're checking out this place, and it's the highlight of my life. Because if they're at that phase, they're willing to have coffee with me. They're, they're pretty sure they're going to they're choose Watermark. And what I get to hear from them, which is what I'm hoping I hear, that 10 out of 10, they say to me, it was so welcoming. I was so included. I came to take communion, and, and, which we're going to do in a minute, and everyone kind of, there's some people that break off as couples or as families, and they circle up, and they have communion, and, and, and they included me in their communion circle, and that was awesome. I never met them before in my life. That's an authentic love you can measure. That is a production. That is what's produced from authentic love and becoming more like Jesus. Are we more like him in our word and our deed? I want to tell you that, that even one person saying yes to Jesus, you can measure that. One person joining a community group and then having a breakthrough because they, they went beyond the surface level conversation and they actually kind of like showed their heart on their sleeve. That's a measurable difference in that person's life because they're no longer the only one who's trapped in, in their head with the stuff they're struggling with. One marriage, one marriage that goes to get counseling and then the whole family system experiences the fruit of a marriage that's becoming more vibrant and more healthy. That's a tangible product. Every good thing through the power of Jesus. So just yesterday, um, I was in the backyard and my son, uh, my wife bought the kids this Venus flytrap. It's like this big. It's got a few little sprouts. Pretty cool. It's just like the shows. It's just like movies, right? You think it's going to eat you. It's awesome. And, um, and, and we come out of the backyard, and we were outside all day, and, and Levi's just like, Dad, it, it, ain't, it ain't a fly. It ain't a fly. And I'm just like, oh, that's good, son. Just responding unconsciously because that's what you do when there's, like, so much noise coming in. And I said to, to him unconsciously, like, not really even thinking the words coming out of my mouth, and I said, that's good, son. I'm, I'm glad that the plant is flourishing. I'm glad. That's good. I'm glad. Like, almost sarcastically, like, cool, the plant's going to live. The plant's going to make it. I'm so happy. And the more I thought about this, it, it, it really struck me. Because I thought, isn't that true for human flourishing? That even when we eat, even when we take in nutrients and the calories 
in day to day, that, that, that's a form of flourishing. That we can flourish because we've, we've taken in those nutrients, we've taken in those ingredients that will help us to flourish. And then of course, some of you know where I'm going next. Of course, Jesus uses the most wonderful par- par- parallel in the whole world by saying, when he was tempted by Satan, Matthew chapter four, you can go look it up. Jesus is standing there and he's being tempted by Satan and says, just go ahead and turn, that, turn those rocks into, into food. And what does Jesus say? He says, you, you will not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And just to highlight one example, you guys, because there's a lot of information maybe this morning, but if you're trying to find out, you're trying to gauge where am I on that spectrum of skill versus will and, and how can I pick it back up, I don't care if you're a 15-year Christian or you're, you're week one Christian, to be in God's word daily will feed you and form a, not just a spiritual flourishing, but will, be, will produce something that is physical and tangible in your relationships, where you work, where you live, where you play, to feed, to feast on his word will cause that type of flourishing. What a tremendous example that Jesus gives us. So maybe that's what we need in our heart this morning. That's what I would ask you to do. These guys are gonna play a couple more songs and you're free to get up and take communion at the front or the back corners. But as you go, pray over this, this request and ask. Ask God, God, where am I at in this today? Have I just lost the motivation? Have I lost the passion? Have I lost the confidence for some reason? Or God, if I'm truly lacking in one of these skills, will you send me someone today before I leave that will help mentor me? Will you send me a connection for a group? Will you give me a next step so that I can get built up and equipped and trained in the way that I need to develop these so-called skills? Pray that prayer. And then as you go forth this week, carve out time to think about it. Forget praying for a second. Just even carve out one minute to think about it wherever you're sitting this coming week. And ask God those same questions. God, where are you calling me to lead in these areas of my life? That's my challenge to you. Let's pray. Jesus, I just thank you so much for um, this word in Hebrews. Father, I'm thankful for the encouragement to persevere. I know that I backslide, Lord, as much as anyone. And I need this encouragement to persevere in what you've called me into. So for those who feel the same way this morning, God, that... um, God, they just feel lacking in, in motivation or energy. Where they feel that they're, they're, they don't have the skills, they don't even have the know-how. Wherever they're at and anywhere in between on that spectrum, I pray, Jesus, that you would, by the power of your Holy Spirit, that you would work those things to production, to bearing great fruit, to bearing amazing flourishing, Father. Not for performance sake, not for pressure's sake, God, but because that's a natural outgrowth of your grace. For those of us in the room who experienced your grace, we've said yes. We've bent our knee to you as the maker of heaven and earth, as the owner and ruler of our lives. Then there is an outcome of that, Father. But you get to produce it through your Holy Spirit. So I pray, Lord, that if anyone's feeling challenged by that, great. If anyone's feeling encouraged by that, let that be true, Lord. Do not let any word of condemnation or guilt or shame come through. Let them feel encouraged that they can make a difference in their lives and the lives of those around them. And that it could lead to great flourishing pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. To find out more about us, go online to watermarkoc.church. 